Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Mick Byers and Luke Heath from the GWS Giants in the AFL. Thanks for tuning in to episode 148 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So massive thanks to uh, Luke Heath and Mick Byers for coming on this episode today. Uh, it's great to get guys on, uh, multiple guys on at the same time, and especially when they're working as closely together as uh, as Mick and Luke are. Really get a, a good kind of sense of how they how they work and how they communicate, especially in what we discuss in the episode, which is the return to play or return to performance process. So just before we get into the episode with Luke and Mick, just want to say a massive thanks to Val Performance, makers of the Nordboard, for sponsoring this episode today. And also to Force Dex for also sponsoring this episode. So Force Dex allows you to take Force Platform testing out of the lab and into the training uh, environment. So the, the massive positive for Force Dex, and on that note, I'd encourage you to check out uh, episode 139 of the podcast, which interviews uh, Dr. Daniel Cohen, who is uh, one of the co-founders of Force Dex. So if you're interested in that, I definitely encourage you to check it out. But the, the main benefit of Force Dex is the, the, how the software allows you to simplify and speed up the testing process. So hopefully reducing the actual testing time um, to a couple of seconds per athlete rather than maybe a couple of minutes uh, in some cases on, on some bits of tech. So I definitely encourage you to check them out and definitely on 139 of the podcast with, um, with Daniel. So I'm going to get over to the chat with Luke and Mick. So I hope you enjoy this episode and I will chat soon. Okay, thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So delighted this evening to welcome Mick Byers and Luke Heath to the podcast. So welcome to the podcast, guys. G'day. G'day. Thanks for having us. Nice. Right, good to have you both. Um, starting with, we'll probably start with Luke. Um, do you just want to give us a little bit of um, background yourself and your current position, what you do day to day, and how you've got to where you are, and then we'll shoot over to uh, to Mick. Yep, no worries. So, so basically, my role at the Giants is that I'm I'm the re, in charge of rehab and and I'm a physiotherapist by trade. So my journey, basically, I've been a physiotherapist for ten years. I started um I started with a sports and exercise science degree, and then I went into a masters in physiotherapy. I started out at a sports private practice, mentored by some great physios, and I'm very thankful to them um, for my development. I then started, uh, they gave me an opportunity through the practice where I started working in rugby union, which led to working at the Australian Rugby Union Academy, um, which then led to working at the Australian Sevens. I then um, completed my master's in sports physiotherapy and started um, doing some work at AFL clubs, which then opened the door um, to working at the Giants. Um, So... For the last three years, I've been working at the Giants as the rehabilitation physiotherapist where I'm basically planning and coordinating the rehab for for all the injured players. And I'm also, I have a bit of a dual role. I'm also the AFL physiotherapist. So basically working on game day to provide acute um, pitch pitch side care to players. And also through the week, I'm also helping in the acute management of of injured players as well that are playing in the AFL. So that's basically my my background and what I do at the Giants. Nice. Pass it over. Pass the mic. Yeah. Nick. Uh, yeah, so I've been a, a strength coach now for about 10 years, just um, starting with my Level 1 qualification. I'd previously gone to uni and got down the sports science path um, went travelling for a little bit and kind of figured out what I needed to do and wanted to do, sorry, and how to how to get there. So when I got back from overseas, I went back and did a, a teaching degree to give me a little bit more knowledge around um, teaching and coaching and also just a bit of a, a second job while I was 
earning my stripes and progressing through the ranks and then uh, just started with amateur rugby and then with the rugby academy and then that became a full-time gig for a little while and then uh, ended up in, in rugby league as a top grade assistant and, and under-20s lead. Um, and then uh, after that, uh, had a little bit of a time where did some part-time work with another junior rugby league team and then um, ended up applying for the fast track traineeship program at the Giants, which was the first year it was offered. A little bit of a step back of sorts, but saw the potential in the role and the program and the club and so took a little bit of a punt and it's paid off now and turned up out into a full-time position and heading into my the end of my third year there at the club now. So it worked out very well. Nice. And in terms of my role, cool. I'm... You, you go no, right. go on, mate. Sorry, I was interrupting you. I'd have been rude there. Carry on. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Carry on, mate. No. Luke does that to me all the time. <laughs> uh, in terms of my role, it's a little bit of a dual role. I look after the one to three year players for their strength development. So by one to three year, that means from the time they're drafted to the club through to their third year in a system. So... Uh, a new player that comes to the club, if they've already been playing for five years, I don't actually look after them. It's just one to three years within a system. So basically, I'm looking after the foundation of our, our young players. And then I help Luke with the rehab program where my main responsibility is to program the strength aspect of their rehab. So Luke and I will discuss what they can and can't do and then I'll build a program in and around that and specifically looking at how we can maintain or develop other areas of their of their body that's not injured. Uh, and I look after the reserve grade team on game day as well. Mm-hmm. So a couple of questions. Firstly, completely off topic, but where did you travel to? Where did you get to? Uh, yeah, I spent a couple of years in Europe yeah. and uh, spent a little bit of time in the Caribbean and America are the bookends of, of the trip, but mostly just just travelled through Europe, lived in London and Edinburgh over the course of two years as well. Nice. Did you like did you like England? Did you like the UK? Oh, I loved it, mate. Loved it. Nice. So secondly, I know probably back on topic, the, the fast track um route that you went down with the Giants. Just talk to us a little bit about that, because I'm interested to see what that is about or hear what that is about yes uh when when the when it was first um first offered it was partly to so we had three interns and it was partly to provide opportunities obviously for those interns to develop but also to fill some of the the minor roles within the club that needed needed filling in and around like um, extra coaching, some extra supervision around cross training and and other areas of the of training in the club to help out with a view to to building the program in the years following. To uh, actually, I might start that again, mate. Go for it. Yeah, yeah. So the fast track trainee program started off initially as a way to to develop some young coaches, coaches that already had a little bit of experience but were looking to take that next step into professional sport or, or elite performance. And so we started off, there was three taken into the program in its, in its initial year and we were actually lucky that we were able to, to fill a lot, of, a lot of roles in and around training in regards to, to coaching on the gym floor helping out with rehab sessions, taking care of cross-training sessions. And so we actually got a lot of opportunities to, to be involved and develop. Um, and from that, they identified the need for some more, more actual staff members. And so it was a really nice platform for those, for the three interns that they were, to just streamline into the program in paid roles. Nice. 
So I just want to touch on the the kind of transfer of of players. Uh, so as soon as they're drafted, they're with you for three years. If if they then progress very quickly and get into the kind of main team or main squad after say a year, they're still with you, or do they make the jump? Yeah, so it's it's not so much like a an academy system. Okay. It's just the one squad. There's about 45 or so, depending on the year. And from the moment they're drafted, they're eligible to play senior football. So we've got one one of the guys drafted this year has played 10 AFL games and hasn't actually played in the reserve competition yet because he's he was quite developed when he got here. He had a little bit of a strength training background and he was a very good player. He was taken very high in the draft. So... They still remain as my responsibility in, in the one to three year program, and it's not based on what level they play. Yeah, it's okay. just purely a system for one to three years. Yeah, I understand. Um, yeah, cause I suppose that differs to what we have over here. Because I mean, just talking from my experience, as soon as you kind of graduate from a, a youth academy to the first team, you're mixing it with the same guys that have been training fifteen years. 10, yeah. 15 years. Um, yeah. I suppose that your system makes it, like you say, on developmental years rather than are you in the are you playing within the squad or not? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So from our point of view, it doesn't really make a difference if you're playing yeah. in the AFL or in the, the NEFL, which is our reserve grade competition. The de- development demands are the same. And so that doesn't really that doesn't really change our approach at all. And we actually don't know they could be called on at any time to play AFL. So um, yeah, we don't make a, too much distinction there. Mm-hmm. Nice. So just moving on a little bit to um, responsibilities in the return to play process. So I'll come back. I'll come back to Luke on this yep. coming from the kind of physio angle. What do you? Where does the responsibility lie, and what's so on a kind of a, a macro level? What's the responsibility in terms of handovers, and I suppose what and where do you see the strength coach fitting into to it as a as kind of coming from a physio point of view? Yeah. So basically, where it all starts is that the medical team formulates a diagnosis of the of the athlete's injury. Um, so. We then, we then give the athlete an approximate return to play date based on their diagnosis and injury. Um, I then plan their program and work out the approximate times um, that, the player, that the player needs to be in the different phases of their rehab. Um, and basically how we run the rehab at the club is that it's all a merit-based system where the athlete needs to earn the right to um, pass through the different phases of, of, of rehab and there's certain criteria that they need to tick off basically. So there, there are different phases. There's about five phases of, um, of, of rehab um, that, the, that the player um, goes through um, and I'll give you a bit brief overview of what those phases um, are and what, what's um, within each of those phases. So the acute phase um, is basically where the athlete is they're injured, we're trying to protect their injury um, and they need to respect the healing of their injury and basically in this phase we try to strengthen all the muscles and condition um, condition them um, in respect to their actual pathology. Um, the second phase is where we can, where we can um, start to load the injury and work on their strength capacity. The third phase is where we start to recondition the athlete, um, really starting to load the tissue um, that that's injured. The th- the fourth phase is where the athlete is integrating into training and will often have additional conditioning and strengthening to complete on top of this. And the fifth phase is where we're really sharpening the athlete up and getting them ready to perform. So in terms of where Mick comes into it, usually around the third and fourth phase, which is when we're really starting to recondition the athlete and get them ready for training and when they are in training, that's when Mick starts to take over more of their program. 
So, yeah, so that's that's basically how it works. So, so what kind of information are you giving to Mick upon that handover? Is it a handover, or are you still are you still de- no, deal so, with that guy together? Yep, yep. So we still deal with the player together. Um, we we talk on a daily basis about players because in rehab things aren't set in stone, and it's um, and things are very grey. So sometimes an athlete's really good and then all of a sudden they can fall, fall off the perch and um, and their injury is flared up and you have to make changes to their to their program. But we have an official strength rehab meeting with the physios and the strength staff at the club once a week um, and that's where we plan basically what they're going to be doing next week um, for best case scenario. So, but much... Um, so yeah, things things do change, uh, unfortunately, and and Mick and I chat every day. We chat on the fly, so that's basically how things work. Mm-hmm. Is there any other third parties that are involved in this this process of kind of working through the phases? Oh, definitely. We 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 have a we have a big team of staff at the Giants. We we have a in in the strength and conditioning department. Um, Lachlan Wilmont helps out with with some of the strength stuff as well for the players returning back into the performance program. So Mick and Locke work together very closely. There's a conditioning staff member who does all the all the conditioning and and the cross training for all the players in rehab. That's Andrew Barnett. And then there's a big there's a big physiotherapy team who and and who's also helps out with treating and getting players back. And then there's the sports physicians as well. So there, there, there is a big team led by David Joyce who, who's involved in, in rehab. And it's not just Mick and I, but it's a big, it's a big team effort that's, that's getting these players back from injury. Mm-hmm. So do you want to talk to us a little bit about the, well, how an athlete kind of jumps from phase one to two and two to three? What kind of markers have they got to hit? For that, for you to be happy that they can they can progress. Yeah, so we, I'll, I'll give you a bit of a background as to why we have the markers. Yep. So we have to, we like to be very objective um, with with rehab, and it's not just going on the feel of things. Um, so we try to keep things as objective as possible, just to keep the guesswork out of our decision making, and. It also puts you, the player, and the coach, um, everyone's expectations are aligned and it also helps with the anxiety of the player because they know what they need to do to get through the different phases of, of rehab. So I'll give you an example of a, of a hamstring injury. The criteria for them to progress from the acute phase into the load introduction phase where they basically, in the load introduction phase, they start running. So basically we want them to have no pain walking um, walking around, no pain walking upstairs, um, and the main objective markers that they have to hit are that they should be able to do a short lever um, single leg bridge five times. Um, their active and passive knee extension needs to be within needs to be within 15 degrees and their their raging bull test or chicken scratch test, whatever you want to call it, for those physios out there, they probably know what that is. That needs to have minimal to no pain. And then basically if they satisfy that criteria and they have no pain on on those on those markers, they can basically start a very, very slow jog. I'm just gonna interrupt there. So that's that's talk, talk me through them that what you just said with the with the chicken scratch. So basically how a chicken is standing up, yeah. how they basically drag their leg along the ground or like a bull is getting ready to charge. To charge. So basically just scraping okay. your feet along okay. the ground. It's like a standing yeah. hamstring curl, if that makes ah, sense, okay. using yeah. the ground as resistance. So that's that's specific criteria that we use. Um, the player knows the criteria. Um, so then the onus isn't on us to get them right. It's the player then goes, okay, I need to achieve X, Y, and Z to start 
to start running. So if that that's a that's an example of one of one of a hamstring injury going from the acute phase into the load introduction phase. And for every injury, we have we have particular criteria that we um, set that we set out and and we show the athletes and and all the staff are on the same page and they know what the criteria is as well. Mm-hmm. Are you able to give us? I mean, it might be good for to get Mick in d- during the um, the further the phases further along before return to play. Any any benchmarks that you can and examples that you can potentially give us up up that end of the scale? If there's not, please say no. If you don't, can't or don't, not comfortable in saying yes. Sir. Do you mean for return to play, or just as they? Yeah. So like. Progress? Yeah. So between say four and five, or three and four, when you're kind of more involved rather than in the acute phase. Yeah. So we'll have what we'll do in the gym. We'll have performance targets. So let's say, for example, they've got a, a lower limb injury. They'll have they'll still have a bench press and a a rowing target, for example, and so. If, if they don't meet that target, they don't stay in the phase, but we just we still keep them accountable and giving them other goals that aren't tied to their injury. Yeah, okay. And then in terms of uh, some targets aligned to their injury, <coughs> excuse me. Let's say they're they're heading towards the end of their of their rehab cycle, so that they can they can do most. Most exercises will have a squat in their program, for example, or it might be might be a deadlift. They'll likewise get a performance target for that. And again, they don't if they don't meet it, they don't get held back. But it's just something that they can strive for. Gives them an idea of where they should be progressing to and what we expect them to get to. Um, and we have that for the main group as well, so it helps to keep them somewhat integrated with the main group rather than having them feel a little bit left out so that we still expect the same level of, of input and accountability for them as well. How important is that integration or to keep the integration with the injured lads, with the main group, psychologically more than anything, I yeah, guess? Yeah, I think it's crucial. It should be done as much as you can. There's obviously times where you just can't. Yeah, there's obvious times when you just can't do it. But as much as you can, I think you've got to have them feel like they're part of that playing team. So whether it's something as simple as if the the main group are doing a dumbbell bench press, give the injured player a dumbbell bench press instead of a barbell because they feel like they're still a part of that unit and it gives them more opportunity to work with their non-injured teammates and, um, you know, have banter with them and talk to them and rather than have that feeling of isolation or, or difference. And has there only been any instances with kind of long-term injuries when you've set like real tough kind of non, non-specific targets like – I, don't, I can't remember where I heard it, but they had a long-term injury and they'd, I think they'd set the the guy a, like a 100-mile bike ride target or something so they could, you know, something to focus on when they're out for six, seven, eight, nine months. Is that... Is- yeah, we'll particularly do that with cross-training targets. So they might have to, uh, within within each phase of their rehab, they'll have to achieve some appropriate challenge. So it might be, for example, like climbing um, Mount Kosciuszko, which is the highest mountain in Australia. They might have to climb that on the stepper. And that might not necessarily be in one session. It might be achieved over a week, for example. Uh, They will do uh, like 10 100s on the rower and you have to keep each of those 100s under a certain time, like with 10% of your first time, I think it is. And then with really long rehabs like an ACL, for example, we'll, sometimes we'll have the achievement of a skill. So they might, for example, at the end of it, or might be to 
to uh, play some squash. We had we had another guy at one time who had an ongoing foot injury, and his goal was to to complete a, a really big fun run that we have in in Sydney at the end of his rehab. So there's just it's usually a little bit something like different to football, so that it gives them a little bit of an outlet and something something else to have some interest in and work towards. Uh, so the the tough goals as you as you put it, generally relate to those those aspects. So we've come to the end of part one uh, with Luke and Mick. So I hope you enjoyed. Hope you enjoyed it. So in part two, we start off with discussing uh, negotiables and non-negotiables within the return to play process, along with a little bit more on the psychological aspects of that process as well and how they try to um, to manage that with the athletes that they're working with at the GWS Giants. So just before we get into part two, just one again, I want to say a thanks to Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. So there is tons of sleep monitoring uh, technology out there at the minute, but I was put on to the guys at, uh, at Fatigue Science via the Seattle, a couple of the guys at Seattle Seahawks who have a really good relationship with them and have, uh, have kitted their their full squad out with um with the ready band from from fatigue science so i've got one as we speak um i've got really good things to say about it and it's kind of usability and an ease of use um and from get from speaking to the guys at the seahawks that then translates over to the team setting as well this kind of ease of use and ease of ease of data data gathering so if you are interested in learning more about fatigue science make sure you check out the website at fatiguescience.com and follow them on twitter at fatigue science so over to part two with luke and mick and hope you enjoy so when we were kind of batting ideas back and forth with regards to discussion points you'd, you'd mentioned negotiables and non-negotiables in the uh, return to play process do you just want to talk to us a little bit about what fits in what book it in regards to negotiables and non-negotiables yeah so I'll, I'll take this one Rob so we at the Giants we think it's really important that the athlete drives their rehab um, this is why we sit them down and talk them through their plan and exit criteria through the different phases of their rehab um, we expect the athletes um, not just to show up and Mick and I run the session. We expect them to drive their session and we basically supervise and coach the players during their sessions. Um, and the reason why we do this is that the athlete needs to take ownership um, on their program and they need to be accountable for their rehab. And let's face it, re- rehab isn't a fun place to be. So if the athlete takes ownership and, res- and responsibility, they usually have better buy-in. Um, and th- there is a lot of negotiating with players all the time in rehab. Um, it's a big tug-of-war session. Um, in, in particular, with senior players, I often get them involved quite a bit in planning their sessions and I give them a say. Um, so whether it's a week in advance or the day before, I often run by, I often run, run the session plan by the player and I'll say, what do you think? What do you think you need? How does your body feel? Because... Some of the players are 30 years old and they know their bodies pretty well and they've been in the system since they were 18. So that's, I often, if you get them involved in the, in the planning of their session, um, they often, as I said, have better buying. So with the younger players, they, they don't get as much input because they're still learning their bodies. But yeah, so that's, that's a philosophy that we sort of have in our planning. Um, and I guess non-negotiables are are the exit criteria, but sometimes if they got the exit criteria, if if they don't tick off one little thing on there, it's the gold standard. We we will sometimes have a discussion amongst the athletic performance department if a player hasn't ticked off a, a certain criteria, and we'll discuss the risks versus reward, and um, and yeah, so that's. Would there be any examples that you might like that, that one you just mentioned there? Is there any specific example you could give that you might, given it a small um, aspect, that you might let it slide, given a discussion, and, and move on to the next phase? 
how small we're talking. A good example, yeah, yeah. A, a good example is just say a player has satisfied coming. I'm using hamstring as an example here again. Just say that they're satisfied all their criteria, but the only test that's down is their. We have a Nord board. There, we'd like them to be within fifteen percent of the other side and within. 10% of their PBs, let's just say they're 15%, um, but they've satisfied absolutely everything else and, they're, and, the, and the player's flying. We, we will have a discussion and say that this, it's a, although they haven't satisfied that one criteria, it's 5% off what we usually would like. We, we, we tell the coach that. Um, we'd have a discussion in the athletic performance department and we would then say, oh, what are, what are the risks? Um, is it worth the player having another week in getting their in getting their their um, their Nord board data within ten percent? Um, so that's 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 one example. So with the another oh, sorry, another Rob might be where there's been a long a long standing issue or a previous injury or something, and a player just you know we we like to use a a three hop for distance, but if a player's got, you know, some an arthritic ankle or something, then we're not necessarily going to make them do a three hop for distance. Or if that is down on the injured side, um, that then there's a reason why that is there, and it's not going to return to that level very quickly, and so it's not appropriate to hold them back for that whole time if they've past everything else and looking quite good otherwise. So with the, with these kind of... You have, to, you have to be realistic, you know. You have to... You can't be so uh, black or white with, with them on. With these kind of percentages, percentage of max or percentage of training strength or whatever it may be, have you, are you, is that... And are you, probably just a throwaway comment about the 10%, but... Is that is that ten percent chosen for a specific reason, or is that kind of tiered at you know building up to that return to play, or is is that ten percent or fifteen percent or whatever you mentioned? Is that for a specific reason? Um, we have a lot of data um, from testing with the players, um, especially if the player's been in the system for a long time. Um, we like them to be close to their PB. Um, because we want the athlete to be ready to perform, basically. Um, so, with there, there is no in all the exit criteria. There is no um, evidence, and there is no um, science that this is the best way to do things. And we often just choose ten um, percent as a because it's close to their PB. Uh, so that, yeah, as I said, there's no. All, all the exit criteria, there's not one paper that says, okay, this is <laughs> yeah. the best way to manage um, this injury. Um, so we, it's basically everyone's experience and we sit down and plan this together as a department and say what is what is the best criteria for this injury. So just the classic art science approach. Yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. right. Exactly right. So they're... they're, they're don't get me wrong. There are some players. There are some papers that like. There's a lot of ACL papers that say that there a battery of tests are needed, um, and it and it decreases your your chance of a, of a recurrence. And there's some hamstring papers out there with certain criteria. So there there are some papers, um, but we 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 take all those papers into consideration and we put our own spin on things. So just to move it on to the. The next point that we'd um, we discussed was the coordination and re-coordination training. And firstly, do you just want to, I mean, there's probably a, um, it'd be good to know what you guys mean and well, what that means to you, I guess, with re-coordination training when it comes to, um, when it comes to running for the uh, return to play. Would you be able to give us a little bit of, you know, what does, what does that mean to you, to you guys as, as rehab guys? Yeah, so whenever there's been an injury, there's particularly lower limb. That obviously there there is likely to be um, some difficulty with them when they first start to run again, 
being able to run how they usually would. So the way we try to to reduce that likelihood or that that amount of difference is to get things going really early. So as soon as they as soon as he can, we'll get them moving and doing basic movement skills uh, and then progressing them onto some particular return to run exercises very simply at the start. So we'll just start with wall holds as a really good example where they're just holding themselves up against the wall, pressing against the wall in an isometric contraction and a 45, not 45, uh, between 45 and, and upright degree angle, so similar to an acceleration type angle. And then they'll just do that two legs to start with and then progress to one leg. Um, we'll introduce pogos really early on as well. And if they can't actually have the, the, the ground contact from, from leaving the ground again, then we'll just make that into single leg where they just they're balanced on one leg and they'll just alternate lifting each leg. So they've always got one leg on the ground and then they can make that more and more dynamic as, as the injury heals and as their coordination improves. So in a simple sense, we, we start simple and progress to complex with, with our basic movement skills and, and return to run drills. And as they progress through the rehab and get closer to running, they'll, in line with that, their drills will progress. Do you have a standard battery that you that you would progress through? Or is that, I guess everyone's different with regards to how how injured they are and how much yeah. that. Yeah. Our standard battery is, uh, I suppose, wall holds, then progress to skipping. And if they can't skip, we have that alternate pogo example that I just mentioned before. And then they'll move to more specific running drills. And that'll just start with some some A marching, really, and that will become more dynamic in nature as they can withstand the ground reaction forces and their coordination mm-hmm. improves. And I guess at that point... And that, that'll be done before they run. As in, but that'll be done before the particular session as well. So when they can't run, they'll go through those drills and then once they do start running, that'll get done before the actual run session. So they're priming them for the run session. And Robert, it also depends what the what the athlete is doing in that session. For example, if the athlete is doing change of direction, um, we often train change of direction early on. So the wall holds, it'll be like a lateral wall hold, um, which will then move into running drilling, which is a lateral A march into a lateral A skip and then it then goes into movement skills where basically they're doing say a step to base in the shuffle where they're shuffling shuffling laterally and they do a base or they do a cut to base. So we often train the skill as a big it's it's quite a big warm up that we do and um, we we do a lot of training of their skills um, and it depends what they're doing in that session as to what we give them in, in that big warm-up, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. No. Or if they're – another example is if they're doing – if their focus is they're progressed from a shuffle and they have to do crossover, we then train the crossover starting from the war drill. Then in, then into their movement skills, we, we, we train a crossover to them actually performing a crossover at speed um, – Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing because you've got the did you mention the conditioning guy? Is that, was it Andrew? Yep, yep, Andrew. Yep. So I'm guessing yep. at, at that point there's another caveat to another member of staff comes in and that that again a, another handover I guess with regards to that that side of things. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. So early stages um, for most lower limb injuries, you're, you're starting straight line. You're working on building their capacity and volume straight line, you're introducing, again, depending on the injury, you then start to trickle in um, some some change of direction, then high intensity running, and then you're looking at high speed running, and then it all comes together. Usually once they've ticked off all their competencies and an athlete's ready to go, it depends what injury it is, you then 
you then give them a handover or I liaise with the conditioning coach and I say, okay, this is where the player's at, what do they need to get to? Um, and sometimes, sometimes if they need more conditioning and more time on legs, the conditioning coach will take over their, their running and I've said that they've ticked off all their competencies and they're ready to go, but they just need some more time. Um, he'll, he'll take over their running. So again, these are the latest stages of, of their rehab. Or another good example is if a player has a fracture to their finger that they need to spend four weeks in rehab, I generally won't take their, re- their rehab running, um, the conditioning coach, because they're able to run. So he usually gives them their running. So I'm guessing that, so he's, he's making that, he's giving the handover back to the, the technical staff in the, the right, right at the end? Um, yeah, it, it, a team, team approach. So sometimes an athlete might be under my care majority of the time and then I liaise with the, um, with the coaching staff and they then start to do all their um, skills work, their contact, their kicking work, and then they go in. Um, but as I said, if, if a player has a finger fracture or if they need more conditioning, they'll then um, spend time with the conditioning coach. I know we've mentioned it a couple of times with regards to the integration with the main squad and things like that, but the psychological and emotional barriers in during this, I suppose, can be a very difficult time if there's a if there's a long standing injury like an ACL. Do you have do you have staff on site that are kind of in and around for that support, or does that is that down to you guys to to create that environment and and be there for these guys during this difficult time? It can be. It's it's a mix of all of those, Rob. I mean, we we do we're lucky enough to have a sports psychologist on on site who who is very involved in in the players and the overall program. Then, of course, we've got some player welfare staff as well, and each each player will be in different mentor groups. So the mentor will be one of the skills coaches. Generally, that'll be the coach responsible for their position. So like it'll be the forwards coach for the forwards as an example. But because Luke and I particularly are working with them more days than not, we're obviously at the forefront of any of those issues when they come up because we're the ones that are are taking them through the sessions and have to deal with, you know, how they're feeling on that day, which of course affects how they might, might respond to what, we ask them to do or their intensity in the session or if they're uh, running late or if they're excited and any of the many different emotions that a player might go through while they're in rehab. It's Luke said it already, but it's not a fun place and nobody wants to be there and you've, they've been separated from their, from their team, you know, so it's often a, a place where players do get a little bit down, you know, peaks and troughs. There um, some players within the group might be a long way. Some players might be very close, and then you've got players that might be very close and and have a setback, or might have a particular game in mind that won't, they want to get themselves up for, which might not be in line with where the performance staff think they'll be ready for, and that can be hard to handle as well. So, I guess we've got systems in place within the broader club, but it's it's Luke and I that that deal with them more in the that acute actual situation. But then of course we can refer on and go and speak to those other people if, if we need to. And of course the players can as well. Well just to just to add to that, Rob, I think a lot of the players' anxiety comes from not knowing. Um, so not knowing where they're headed not knowing when they're going to be back playing, not knowing when they're going to be back training. So I think sitting them down early on, showing them their plan, showing them, showing the player their criteria that they need to satisfy to get through the different phases of rehab, for them to get into training, for them to play, actually alleviates a lot of their anxiety. So that's, that's what we try to, and that's what I think helps the players quite a lot. And for... Players like ACL reconstructions, um, their long-term rehab, 
it's it's a long grind. We we have a lot of things that we try do to keep them interested in their rehab. So we like to set specific targets along the way for them. Um, so we have testing weeks. Um, there's also we we try to do a lot of off-site training with them. So we're quite lucky where we are at Olympic Park in Sydney where there's a gymnastics centre where we'll go do some work over there once a week or there's a sand pit where we'll go do some work at the athletics track and even I've taken some guys over to the sunny northern beaches where I live and we go paddle boarding on a Saturday morning as just something different for them. Um, so we, we, that sounds, that we do fast. try and make an I'm coming. Yeah, we, we do try and make an effort, um, but it can get, get quite hard depending how many people you have in rehab and just what else you have on at the club. But we do try and make an effort with our guys because we understand how hard it is for them, especially those long-termers. And I know it is a difficult time, but from a member of staff, it's, it's where you can build up a real trust with the players and get a real relationship going that carries on um, weeks, months, years after the after they've gone back to play. And it's, it's that time you can build up that real relationship with these guys because you're so involved with them day in, day out. Yeah, I, to- I totally agree with you, Rob. Um, in rehab, you have quite a lot of contact time with the players. So, for example, I'd start by screening them early in the morning, treating them, getting them right, and then we move out into the track with them. We do some, Mick and I will do some running with them. And we're there for sometimes out out on the field for about two hours there. Then the players go off and they often go have some lunch and then we're with them in the gym for the afternoon for about an hour or so. And then if they're doing any other little specifics, then some more treatment. So there is a lot of contact time with the players in rehab. So you do build a good relationship with them. So I guess that's... That's a good part of the job is that you, you build these relationships with the players that are that are long-lasting and, and we're, we're very lucky at the club. We have a good bunch of guys that we work with. So um, it is great. Um, but, yeah, as as I said, the flip side of that is that they don't want to be in yeah. rehab. So <laughs> they don't want to see you. Yeah. You can often, they can, they can often be like when they get out of rehab, they're like, see you later, <laughs> and you don't speak to them. Yeah. <laughs> too much time with Mick who, Luke who? Um, there's, yeah, exactly right, exactly right. So <laughs> there's a flip side to that. But, yeah, as I said, the boys at the club, they're a good bunch of boys to work with. So they often are very appreciative of, of the work and, and the time that we put into them. So, um, yeah, I guess that's the, the buzz of doing the job is that you 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 rehab them and then you get to go see them play and it, you it's, it's, it's a massive buzz for me. So that's that's why I do what I do. So and how, how are you guys getting on at the minute? The big, the club, I mean. Um, yeah, we're doing pretty well. Yeah, yeah, we're doing pretty well. I think we're coming third on the okay. ladder. So we're, we're looking good heading into finals. So hopefully we can keep that run going there and oh, get a flag. Mm-hmm. Win the win the premiership. That's yeah. the goal. So you did you get beat in the final last year? No. In the the preliminary right, preliminary okay. final. Yep. So one before, one before the yeah, big show. Okay. So the big show is the uh, aim this year. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly right. Nice. Well. I know this is super early for you guys, so I'm going to let you go. But just before, we, before I do, standard procedure, and he's asking you where people can keep up to date with what you've got going on, social media-wise. Yep, yep. Um, so I have a Twitter account which isn't very active, but <laughs> but I, I use it mainly just to follow follow people um i don't do that many posts so my my twitter account my twitter account is luke heath or at luke heath 85 so and mick yeah mate i'm on instagram mostly and i've got that link to twitter so thankfully i just have to update one and the other one updates as well so my instagram handle is strength coach one word underscore Mick, M-I-C-K, 
getting a bit more active on Instagram, I see as well, Mick. I like it. I'm trying to, mate. I'm trying to. <laughs> I can't. I can't quite match performance code with Mark. But <laughs> does he get some shit from people about it? I hope he does. Oh, definitely, definitely, Good. yeah. Good. <laughs> and he pretends like he doesn't like it, but he actually loves it. <laughs> did he? Did he speak at the um, Central Virginia Sports Performance Clinic? Did he go out? Uh, no. I don't think so. No, no, no. Right. He put a post just, up there for and it was just advertising it, I think, rather than him speaking. Right, okay. Yeah, that must have been it. I just I saw him post a couple of times about it and I thought I wonder if he's um I wonder if he's going over. Yeah. No, no, he's definitely not going over. Well, I hope not. He hasn't told me yet. <laughs> cool. Well I'm glad to get some ribbon from the from the lads about that. That's pleased yeah, me. That's definitely but yeah, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna let you guys go. But I really appreciate you both coming online, especially on your day off, um, and super well, uh, not only for you guys, but super early for everyone else. Uh, so really appreciate it. Thank you very much. No, no thank worries. You. Thanks for having us, Rob. Great to be on. Nah, it's a pleasure, guys. Pleasure. So we'll we'll keep in touch. But um, but thanks again, and I'll, uh, we'll we'll speak soon. Yep. No worries. See you guys. Thanks for tuning in to episode 148 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Massive thanks to Luke and Mick for getting up nice and early and uh, and coming on the podcast for a good chat. So I hope you enjoyed the uh, the information that uh, that them guys were putting out. So massive thanks to Vald Performance, makers of the Nordboard, Force Decks, and Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. Got some really good guests, uh, a couple of really exciting guests coming up over the next couple of weeks. So make sure you subscribe on your chosen podcast player slash app um, so you don't miss out and you get every episode uh, as soon as it comes out. So again, thanks for your support. Thanks for listening to this episode and I will speak to you next week.